All right, fasten your seatbelts. We're about to go on a journey. Revelation, today's scripture reading is Revelation 18, verse 1 through 19, verse 8. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horse and carriages, and human beings being sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment, they will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? 
They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. This is the word of the Lord. So this fall we are journeying through the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book that reveals that there is much more to life than what we can see and hear and touch. There is a battle raging all the time between good and evil, between God and his enemies. And we live in the crosshairs of that battle. We've spent the last three weeks getting our bearings in this strange and wonderful book. If you missed any of those sermons, I highly encourage you to go back and listen so that you don't get lost in this wilderness. Revelation was written by John. John was one of the first apprentices of Jesus. And he wrote it uh, to persecuted Christians living in Asia Minor, what today we would call Turkey, uh, toward the end of the first century AD. And John's message in this book is really simple. Despite appearances, God rules the world. 
And one day he will destroy evil and establish his just kingdom on a renewed earth. And therefore, no matter how hard things get, no matter what it costs, you can confidently and courageously follow Jesus because you know that behind the scenes, God is working to bring about his great and glorious purposes. Last week, we talked about Babylon. Babylon is a timeless trope. It refers to the complex systems, human systems, that exist in every culture, all throughout history, that idolize power, that exploit and oppress people, and that draw our attention away from God, steal our allegiance and our affection away from God. We talked about how Babylonian religion is a religion of the self, a religion that appeals to our most base appetites and selfish desires. Dylan Fisk is a freshman at UMass, an English major. He's been attending college church for about a month. After church last week, he went home. He continued meditating on Revelation 17, and he wrote this poem. I'm going to read it for you. It's called, O Babylon. O Babylon, the original tyranny... In long-forgotten days, you robbed people of their homes, conquered lands and violence, all to fuel your twisted machinations. But even your great fall failed to stop you from paving the road to Rome where souls were drained of life, pockets bled of hope, worship devoid of spirit. Within your lavish pillars, your grand Caesarean cities, you became the whore we know today, sat atop a vile beast waiting to be idolized. O oh, mother of prostitutes, seductress of every monarch, every politician and leader, you didn't have to wait long, for man approached you, so blinded by your curves and empty promises as to never see the knife in your hand, the dragon in your heart. Man joined in your drunkenness, subscribed to your dogma, lost his soul in your pleasure, and from that day he never failed to find you a place in the world. O oh, parent of earth's abominations, overseer of corruption, you've become entangled in our history. And though man has found and detested you before, you still slip through our vision, even capture our favor. The allure of your self-centered life beckons man to become his own God, to be the sun in his solar system, to isolate himself in the void. Your whispers guide our every desire towards your serpentine master. Your teachings give rise to a people intent on destruction, glorifying all that God despises, sullying the beauty of creation, selling the love of fellow man for riches bound to this earth, leaving all others to starve, perverting affection, promoting transaction, dangling power in front of hungry eyes. All are swept up in your passionate, maddening dance, and those that seek its end find no refuge. For to cease is to be exiled by those under your spell. And the island of righteousness has been stripped of its sustenance. So we dance. We play your little game. We let you poison our minds and degrade our culture. And we wait not to be idolized like you, but to be saved by the one who can purge your deepened roots. So count your days. Not bad for an 18-year-old with a month of college under his belt. There are copies of Dylan's poem in the connections table on the back. You want to pick one up and take one home.
Our text today chronicles the fall of Babylon and people's reactions to it. And today we're going to ask three questions. How should we think about God's judgment? Because that's really what this passage was all about. What does it mean to come out of Babylon, which is the command within the text? And what will it take to resist Babylon, which is the whole reason John's writing? First, how should we think about God's judgment? You know, the gospel offends everyone. Modern Westerners tend to be offended by the idea of a God who judges. But for many people throughout the world and throughout history, the most scandalous parts of the Bible are when God postpones judgment and shows mercy and compassion to those who do evil. One of the drumbeats of the Hebrew Bible is this description of God. Here it is in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, how does that work? Is God merciful or is he just? Does God forgive sin or does he punish sin? Is, if God is just, how can he be, be merciful? If God is merciful, how can he be just? And throughout the Old Testament, this, this tension just grows and grows until you get to the end of it. And the question is left just hanging there unanswered. And of course, it's ultimately resolved in Jesus who lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. On the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, yet became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God's justice against sin and God's mercy towards sinners were both satisfied. But many in our culture struggle with this idea that God will judge the world. But here's the reality. You cannot have justice without judgment. And if you hope for justice, you cannot have hope without judgment. In Revelation 18, Babylon, the great empire that grew to power through arrogance and exploitation and oppression, finally falls. And John begins preparing the reader for the scene all the way back in chapter 6. Take a look at this. Chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of heaven the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. What's going on in this scene? Innocent people are suffering and dying at the hands of the empire. Why? Because of their faithfulness to Jesus and his word. And these souls who have been martyred are crying out, How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to avenge our deaths? When are you going to vindicate us? Because right now, Rome thinks that they're on the right side of history. When are you going to prove them wrong? When are you going to tip the scales? When are you going to make things right? Do you know who cries out for justice? The victims of injustice. 
Miroslav Volf, who grew up amidst genocide in the former Yugoslavia, said, and I'll paraphrase, the idea that a loving God would never judge only works in a peaceful suburb. It doesn't work in a scorched land that has been soaked with the blood of the innocent. Those who have been oppressed long for justice. They don't want a sweet, indulgent God. They want a God who is committed to justice and setting the world to rights. Rebecca Pippert says that God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. God's not moody. But his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God's wrath is a function of his love. Exploitation, oppression, injustice, hate, these are cancers that need to be rooted out, that need to be eradicated so that God's children and God's creation can flourish. Some of you know what it's like to be taken advantage of, to suffer at the hands of the strong. And you have prayed from your own gut, how long, O Lord? Some of us have developed calluses around our hearts. We've gotten used to Babylon. We've adapted to a certain amount of injustice and oppression and wickedness in the world. But then something happens, maybe in our personal lives or maybe in the world, and it slices through those calluses. And suddenly we find ourselves singing along with those martyrs under the altar of heaven. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to clean up this mess? When are you going to take out the trash? When are you going to make things right and whole? Revelation 18 is good news for the oppressed and the exploited. It's good news for those who've been used and abused and taken advantage of. It's good news for those who suffer for being faithful to Jesus. It's good news for those who ache in their hearts for justice and peace. Friends, there is no justice without judgment. There is no hope without judgment. The fall of Babylon paves the way for the new Jerusalem to come. It paves the way for shalom to be restored. Please don't say, I don't want God, God to be a judge. I don't want God to judge the world. Don't be naive. Don't turn a blind eye to evil. Don't ignore the oppressed. Don't settle for a world that's stained with evil. All right, what does it mean to come out of Babylon? After Babylon falls, we hear two very different songs. We hear a funeral dirge, and we hear a song of praise. Why such different responses? Well, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your song will be also. The kings of the earth, the merchants, the seafarers, all lamented when Babylon fell. Why? Because their treasures were all bound up with Babylon. They looked to Babylon for happiness and comfort and hope and meaning and security. Their identities had become fused with Babylon. So when Babylon went up in smoke, their wealth and their dreams went up with it. We sang earlier, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame. 
As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us. Therefore, I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ. The reason that the faithful witnesses rejoice is because they do not look to Babylon for identity and meaning and security. They have been storing up their treasure in heaven. They have been investing in a kingdom that will last. Is that escapism? Not at all. Christians have always been deeply invested in this world, but Christians invest in the things that will last forever, that will follow us to the new Jerusalem. By placing these two songs side by side, the dirge and the hallelujah, John is forcing us to ask ourselves, what are you investing in? What are you building your life on? How long will those things last? To what extent is your happiness, your hope, your security and identity tied up in things that will pass away? When the present kingdom falls, which song will you sing? To come out of Babylon is to resist the temptations to build your life on things that will not last, to build your identity on what you accomplish or achieve for your own glory to hitch your wagon, your hopes, your ambitions to the corrupt systems of an empire that is passing away. John is helping us to see that so much of what seems permanent and invincible, so much of what occupies our time and attention, so much of what people chase after and set their hearts on will one day go up in smoke. The Babylons of this world will have their day, and through them, the beasts and the dragon will lead people astray, stealing people's attention and allegiance and affections away from the Lamb. But they will not last. In the end, they will go up in smoke. Much of the language in chapter 18 is the language of decreation. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's the language of unraveling. This is the destiny of the dragon the chaos monster, and everything that he rules over. God's dream is to restore all things, to form a renewed people from every tongue and tribe and nation. But before that dream can come in full, the kingdoms of this world must fall. The powers and principalities that undergird them must be destroyed. And the question is, when that day comes, will you lament or will you rejoice? Whose kingdom are you building? Where are you investing your treasure? Where does your hope lie? Come out of Babylon. Set your hearts on things above. Do not invest in smoke. Invest your life in things that will last forever. Thirdly, what will it take to resist Babylon? It's going to take a lot, my friends. Babylon is powerful and pervasive. I love this cartoon. The 
Babylon is the air we breathe. It is the soup that we swim in. It is, it's just so normal, we don't even realize that it's there. Individualism feels normal to us. So do secularism and consumerism and relativism. The greatest enemies of the gospel in our culture are not people, they are ideas. All of these invisible forces remove God from the equation of life. And they make human beings the measure of all things. So how's the water, friends? One of the first things we must do if we're going to resist Babylon is repent of our tribalism. I think, why? Why would we start there? Well, here's the deal. Tribalism shuts down discernment. Because tribalism demands that we always defend our tribe. It insists that the problem is always out there. It is never in here. But Babylon is no respecter of sides. It can colonize anywhere, and it does. It can colonize abroad and at home, among conservatives and progressives, in the world and in the church. Babylon is wherever arrogance and pride run amok, wherever people are used and power is abused, wherever something or someone other than Jesus is offered as the source of redemption and meaning. The United States has been Babylon. The church has been Babylon. I know that's provocative. I'm not trying to be. Babylon is the extermination of indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans. Babylon is politics that traffic in lies and fears. Babylon is media that stokes distrust and division. Babylon is churches that pressure people to overfunction until they burn out. Churches that weaponize theology against certain groups of people. Churches that elevate leaders who are long on charisma but short on Christ-likeness. Churches that are politically co-opted by the left or the right. In order to resist Babylon, we need a robust set of practices that form us in the way of Jesus. I was listening to a sermon by John Mark Comer recently, and he was telling his church in Portland, Oregon, which culturally is very similar to Western Massachusetts, what it will take to resist Western secularism. And he said this, we dream of being a community of tight-knit, loving relationships in a culture of individualism through the practice of community. We dream of cultivating orthodoxy in a culture of ideology through the practice of Scripture. We dream of pursuing holiness in a culture of moral relativism through the practices of prayer and fasting. We dream of being a people of peace in a culture of fear through the practices of silence and solitude. We dream of being peacemakers in a culture of political polarization through the practice of hospitality. We dream of being a, a people who know how to, how to rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. We dream of being a people of contribution in a cult culture of careerism through the practice of vocation. And we dream of being a community of justice in a culture of social Darwinism through the practice of generosity. That's a pretty cool vision, isn't it? We can't unpack each of these today, but over the years, we certainly have unpacked many of them, and many of them we unpacked just this past winter. 
But Comer goes on to say that we need a radical recommitment to Jesus as Lord, which means we have to give up our foolish and even demonic attempts to be a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian or an American Christian. Any adjective that we put before the word Christian is an attempt to mix Babylon with the way of Jesus. Instead, we must offer all that we are to God. We must surrender our whole lives to Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior, but as our Lord and King. The monastics talked about cultivating the inner flame of love for Jesus and for people. And every day we can either smother that flame or we can feed it. In a few weeks, we'll get into Jesus' letters to the seven churches. One of the themes in those letters is the need to return to our first love. To love the triune God supremely above all else. To cultivate a zeal, a spiritual passion for God in this kingdom and to not let that love grow cold. Some of us need to repent and return to our first love. Some of us are in the process of doing that right now. Keep going. But we need a radical recommitment to the way of Jesus. Comer says that we need a, a way of life together that will set us up to flourish and thrive in the corrosive soil of secularism. The old ways of going to church every Sunday or every other Sunday or once a month or maybe just listening to the podcast and reading the Bible or following the Bible on Instagram, that's not going to cut it, friends. We are up against it, and we need to be deeply formed by the gospel. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian during World War II. He created an underground seminary called Finkenwald during the Holocaust to train pastors to resist their Babylon and stay true to Jesus and his kingdom. Bonhoeffer came from a privileged family. Uh, one day, an old friend went out to him and said, Diedrich, what are you doing out here, literally in the middle of nowhere? Come back to your senses, Dietrich. Come back to Berlin. Come back to the university where you belong. Be who you are. And Bonhoeffer was really quiet. He took his friend in a rowboat. And he rowed across this little lake here. And then he took him up an incline. And on the other side of the ridge was a Nazi camp filled with youth that Hitler was training and radicalizing to be part of his genocide machine. And Bonhoeffer pointed to the seminary on the other side of the ridge and said to his friend, this must be stronger than this. This, our church, our discipleship, our community life must be stronger than that. And I'm not comparing Western Mass to Nazi Germany. I am saying that it must be stronger than secularism's tidal force. We have to cultivate a way of life that is robust, that is built around Jesus as the most important thing in our lives. Remember the trellis? We spent months this winter talking about a rule of life a set of practices and habits that create room in our lives and in our life together for God to shape us and to train us and transform us so that we become more and more like Jesus. Do you remember Daniel, this young man, this brilliant, brilliant young man who was exiled to the literal Babylon? 
where they tried to assimilate him into their culture, to erase his old way of life and give him a new way of life. And what did Daniel do? Three times a day for the rest of his life, he got down on his knees and faced Jerusalem and he prayed. And you can imagine him saying, God, I don't want to lose my distinct identity as your child. Help me to remain faithful to you and to your ways, even here. And he refused to eat the king's food, and he refused to bow his knee to the king. And when things got really, really hard, he gathered his friends and he asked them to pray for him. And through these practices, Daniel resisted Babylon. He resisted Babylon by cultivating a way of life, a set of habits and relationships that allowed him to put God first in his life so that he could remain a faithful witness in Babylon. Friends, this is how we will resist Babylon. It is the only way we will resist Babylon. Right now, for me, it means getting up earlier than I want to so that I can be still before God and meditate on his word and commit my day to him. It means carving out silence and solitude throughout my week so that I can pay attention to God and invite Jesus below the surface of my life. It means prioritizing community. I am so grateful for my small group and for the ministry teams through which I experience deep friendship and community with my brothers and sisters here. I have four pastors groups. Some of them meet weekly, some of them meet monthly, but the focus of all of them is spiritual friendship and prayer. Friday night, I met with a cohort of young leaders who want to develop a habit, a rhythm of setting aside regular time to practice the presence of God together. And to remind each other that we have souls that need to be tended and that our worth doesn't come from what we do, but from whose we are. Prayer is at the heart of our weekly staff meetings and our bi-monthly elder and shepherd meetings. I practice Sabbath every week. I carve out times throughout the year to pause and to pray in community. That's how I'm trying to resist Babylon. What does it look like for you? The message of Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is this. The kingdoms of this world that are so powerful and so pervasive that loom large over our imaginations every day are passing away. The kingdom of our Lord, which comes to us like a seed, which comes to us small and vulnerable, but yet filled with power and potential, that kingdom has already come into the world part. It will one day come in full, and that kingdom will last forever. It will be the only kingdom left standing. And our job as followers of Jesus is to resist the earthly kingdoms, to come out of them so that our values and priorities, who and what we look to for meaning and security are shaped not by the world, but by Jesus. But in order to do that, we must be vigilant about crafting a way of life together that is powerful enough to resist Babylon and to form us in the way of Jesus that leads to life, that leads to righteousness and peace, that forms us into peacemakers, into those who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. 